good. Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders, and today we have a special guest. Woo! Guess who we got, people? The renowned, none other than Lisa Sharon Harper is our guest today. Lisa, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness, I love being with you guys. <laughs> Thank you, I'm very happy to be here. So I, I have known Lisa uh, for many, many years. I think, what, 2002, Lisa, is that about? Uh, 2003. 2003. 2003. My wife just yelled in the background, 2003. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Edith. <laughs> so, so we've been through some stuff together, and Lisa has been involved in so many things. Uh, I don't want to run down a whole resume, but she like shook New York City up for a while in the New York Faith and Justice. And then you're involved in some other things there, too, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then she was over at Sojourners and she shook up Washington, D.C. And now she's shaking up Philadelphia. So uh, wow. uh, but Lisa, tell us a little bit about um, Freedom Road and uh, and what the whole point is there that that uh, you basically have invented and uh, co-sustained. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, Freedom Road is a consulting group and really an educational group that works to shrink the narrative gap in the United States and actually around the world. Um, We have uh, lots of ways that we do that, but our our main strategy, our main reason for being is that we believe that one of the biggest reasons why we keep, you know, making progress forward on issues of justice and then being pushed back is that there are competing narratives in our world Um, And we want to shrink that gap between our narratives so that we can make real progress toward a just world. Yeah. So shrinking the narrative gap. So is that like I always talk about um, how do you stop a bad story? You tell a better story. Is that sort of the idea? Exactly. And you tell a truer story. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah, A more complex, a more human, a more flesh, a more connected story. Yeah. And it's a difficult task. It's, you know, it's a balancing act because, um, and now, uh, now I'm not going to agree with the statement, but I'm going to state it. Okay. So uh, listeners, please uh, don't throw any arrows and darts this way. Um, but P.T. Barnum said, oh, Lord. no one ever got rich by overestimating the intelligence of the American public. Oh, now, Lord. what I take from that is not that everybody's stupid, but people Good. don't want to hear generally a complex story, right? That's true. They don't want to hear a nuanced story. They want to hear a narrative that just sort of like, you know, ties it all up. So that's difficult to do, isn't it? It is. I mean, one of the things that I learned, you know, back in college when I was an American studies minor um, is that as an American, we're used to two major things being a part of our stories. One a moral at the end of the story. So every story has to be wrapped up with a moral at the end of the story. And then two, good guys and bad guys. So we have cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers. There's always a good guy and a bad guy. Indians are the um, good guys, right? Right. Uh, (laughs) In my narrative. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your narrative. And and really, okay. So anyway, yes, yes. Um, But the thing is, is that an American, the way that we tell stories we actually warp truth. And as a result, um, we cause injustice because we live according to warped truth. So narrative, shrinking that narrative gap is, is really essential um, to, to bring about a more just world. Mm. So I, I love that, shrinking the narrative gap. And, and um, you know, full confession, uh, my wife and I are 
senior advisors uh, at freedomroad.us. So, yes. um, uh, but that's just because we believe in, in what Lisa is about there. So, well, but it's also because I believe in what you are doing and in all that you've invested in, in developing your own um, life and worldview and, and sharing it with the world, Randy. So it's a privilege to have you on our team. Just like it's a privilege to be in conversation with both of you today. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we're glad you're here, and we're sure excited about the release of your book, which we'll talk about eventually. Which we're super, I'm just delighted to be a part of, um, of well, celebrating that with you. I wanted to ask you real quick: it, when you get introduced, I hear words like you know, author and speaker and activist, but how do you like to be introduced? How do you? There, you know, sort of describe your work in the world, or hmm, that's that's funny. Honestly, somebody literally asked me that the other day. So, how do you want to be introduced? I mean, we could introduce you as an author, activist, you know, speaker. I said, That's fine, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fine. I mean, really, it kind of does encapsulate all of it, but I mean, if you ask me my vocation, yes. that's a little different, right? So, my vocation is my vocation is maybe two on two different levels on one level it is to make for a more just world my vocation is to is to push us toward that more just world um and my vocation is to leave a better better world for my not my descendants because i don't have any kids but my family's descendants and so i really am i really am this book fortune and everything i do is for the sake of my nieces and nephews and the future generations. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, you also, as a vocation, uh, because I've, you know, I got to read this book before it came out, um, have been a uh, sort of a part-time historian for a number of years. You had to do a lot of research to get this book right. And the, the unique thing, let's go over the title right now. Um, sure. Fortune, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How race broke my family and the world, and how to repair it all. So that is some heavy stuff. So, yeah. um, but it, it reads wonderfully. People, it, it I really enjoy reading it. So, um, uh, you had to do a lot of research, not just in your own family, but also in social movements and everything else. Talk, talk to us about that experience. Well, it was funny because you know the research started thirty years ago. And um, it was really just in conversations with my mom because it was the one way that we really bonded together. We had a really broken relationship, but doing family genealogy was the thing we connected over, the one thing we connected over because I, at that point, had been embedded in evangelical community and she was not evangelical. (laughs) So she was like, you know, she dated Stokely Carmichael back in the day. Like she was, she she comes from activism, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like that was, she was, she was one of the charter members of um, SNCC in Philadelphia. She helped mm-hmm. to build SNCC in Philadelphia. And here I am, I come to Jesus, white Jesus, by the way, in 1983, <laughs> I walk down the aisle, give my life to Jesus at a Sunday evening camp church meeting. I'm the only piece of pepper and a whole bowl of salt, you know? <laughs> and, um, um, and I was told almost immediately I needed to be uh, a Republican now that I'm a Christian. And so I went home and tried to tell my mom to vote for Reagan. It was, it was 1983 and Reagan was running for president in 1984. So yeah, we have, you have to go, you have to vote for Reagan. And my mom was like, who are you? And what have you done with my child? So anyway, um, my mom and I bond, the one thing we could bond over in those 1990s years was our genealogy. And I think part of it was that 
she was trying to help me remember who I am. Oh, yeah. You know, she was trying to help me reconnect to who I am and who I come from. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know that then. I just thought it was fascinating. But when I did that research, all, the, all that I had at that time and the very first family tree I ever did was just the dates that those ancestors lived and like their relationship to me, great grandpa, um, 18 XYZ, I think it was like 1880 something to 1950 something, you know? And then great, great grandpa, 1842 to 1900. I mean, you know, I didn't know the names. My mom did, but she just didn't share them with me at that time. And so, um, but then over the years, of course, it was all filled in. And when I hit ancestry.com, what? Like on the very first night, the first night of, um, of being on Ancestry.com, I was hooked and I was up till 3 a.m. and found myself in Jamestown. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, what are you, what? You know what? And it was through marriage. It wasn't through, through blood, but it was through marriage. And now actually DNA does show that our family was among um, the early Africans who were brought here in the late 1600s to early, early 1700s. Um, and we, Fortune, herself, she was born in 1687 in Maryland, um, and a part of Maryland that actually is also very connected to Virginia. And so her family, her descendants ended up moving over to Virginia and being free, free black people, mixed race people, but black, considered black, um, and mulatto, I guess, as well. Um, in, uh, in Virginia, uh, in the and by the mid 1700s. So my, the research, what I found was when I stumbled upon fortune, um, I realized her life was shaped by the very first race laws. And I thought, what? Like the first race laws ever were created in Virginia's and I mean on, on American soil, were created in the colony of Virginia's um, House of Burgesses um, and in 1662. Two years later, 1664, Maryland creates their law. And Maryland created their law. All law is crafted in a context in order to deal with a perceived problem, actual problem on the ground, not because of philosophical beliefs or anything like that. It's just something's right. going on and they need to legislate about it. Yep. So what was going on was white women were coming over from England and Ireland and being indentured servants and falling in love with the enslaved black men who were working right alongside them and having children by them in Maryland. And 600 mixed race children were born in Maryland and Delaware just in a colonial period alone. So these these white planters, right? And who were also the legislators in Maryland, they, they said, we can't have this. So you know what they did? They instituted the first race law two years after Virginia's first race law. And what they said was any white woman who marries an enslaved black man and has children by that man shall herself be enslaved to her master, to her husband's master until her husband dies. And her children shall be enslaved in perpetuity. So it didn't take long, only, you know, a couple decades. And next thing you know, the planters are now forcing their white women to marry and have children with enslaved black men. And, you know, this, this Catholic colony, the legislators clutched their pearls and said, oh, we didn't mean to do that. So they began to, to change the laws, shift it, shift it, shift it. 
to the point where by the time um, Fortune was born, she uh, came under the law that said that if you are the mixed race child of that kind of a union, mixed race union, then you um, will be indentured for 30 years if the, if the father is black, 20 years if the father is white. Wow. And, and the woman will not be indentured anymore. And that happened because of some other stuff that's in the book. Just too much. Yeah. Detail to go over yeah. So, so it was basically a way to create more enslaved people. Bottom line. Yes. And it was, and it was also a way to punish the white women for race, really being a race trader. Right. Um, you know, trade. Um, a so-called uh, race trader. We, we know we're all one race. Right, right, right. Exactly. But that's right. You know, but that's not how they thought back then. And that's right. That's what I'm talking about. Their worldview. And that ain't how they think now. Human hierarchy. <laughs> oh my so gosh, that, I always get in trouble with you, Randy. <laughs> so we're, we're going to make good trouble. So uh-huh. uh, the the thing I was going to ask you, you answered perfectly. I was going to say, well, why, why is it your ancestor fortune ended up being the title of the whole book? But, but now I got it. I got it all yeah. sort of stems. All the things happened right around her time. Exactly. And, well, let me just say, let me just say this one last thing is that fortune um, was born and, and absorbed the wrath of those first race laws. But as I did more research on my family, I realized all of them were living in, in critical times where things were happening. So I couldn't actually understand their lives unless I understood the laws that were being passed and the, the things that were happening in government policy at the time. So as I say, I believe in the introduction, in many cases, especially in those early, early chapters, context is text. Context yeah. shapes the lives and the fortunes and the futures of these ancestors. It, it forced them to make particular choices. Um, and so that's why in this book, you get my own family story woven together with American, with America's story. Yeah. And we're going to, um, at the very end of this conversation, we're going to come to applying that to right now, our day. We're, mm-hmm. we're just past January 6th anniversary day. We're in the middle of the culture wars. The country's probably not been this divided since the civil war. So we want to talk about mm-hmm. like, well, how does this apply to us now? But before that, let's get to some more things. Bo, I want to give you a shot before I ask. I got a lot of questions. So, uh, <laughs> okay. You know. I appreciate that. I will. I will ask just a, one more sort of introductory thing because I, I know that you and Lisa have so much uh, that you've worked on together, and you could have this whole conversation. So I, I really appreciate it. But I did want to ask about your writing style. Hmm. So, because of my uh, academic pursuits, I read a lot of books about things. Yeah. This book is a. You're a storyteller. I am. You're not, it's a very interesting and engaging writing style that you have because you're not just talking about something, you're telling the story. And I just wanted to ask you about that writing style. Is that something that you have like intentionally developed or just, just did the subject matter call for it? How did you come to write in this, this narrative style? Literally all of the above. Um, I started out before I was an activist or theologian or anything like that. I was a playwright. So, you know, I started out writing plays and telling stories on the stage. And, um, you know, my very first book, not book, my very first mounted play, like actually a produced play was And Pushed the Wind Down. And that was, that was 
me imagining and doing research and trying to put in play form, trying to work out what would life have been like for the story of my ancestors that, that we were told that walked the Trail of Tears who were both Black and Cherokee. So I was trying to figure that out without a whole lot of research to, that was even available to me at the time. So I tried my best and I got it wrong, but it was still a great story. <laughs> and it's a really great story. And it won a national award. But um, so in my writing now, I have a writer's group that we started called the Global Writers Group. And we have about 40 members who are all over the world. And we come together once a week on Saturdays and write for three hours and then share each other's work, three minutes of each other's work and give a minute of feedback every single Saturday. And I'm telling you, it started over the, you know, the COVID lockdown and it has gone since then. People, it is it is like sacred ground. And these writers have deeply influenced my own writing. I, I have learned how to tell a better story by listening to them. Um, so I've been, I've been, my writing has been influenced by other good writers. That is so interesting. I First two chapters, there are songs included, there are poems. And I actually found myself thinking at one point, oh, I hope they make this an audio book. And I hope she reads it because oh, yeah. we I, did, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm in. I'm. Oh, in. that's so cool! Yay! <laughs> yeah, Lisa is a good storyteller. Um, one time we were at a gathering, and she read my children's book, The Harmony Tree, the and I was thing. like, "If we ever get this audio, she is gonna be the person who reads it." So. Oh, thank you! I, I can't wait for that to happen. It should be an audio book. It's it's yeah. a beautiful, beautiful story. Well, yeah. there's there's a lot going on. I know you've been involved in politics and faith and all these things over all the years, and you've been involved at different lots of different levels from organizing and protest and everything else. And um, but um, there's there's a, a sort of a place in your book where I want to pick your brain about, and that is um, it's the context of my question is about uh, really about the culture wars that we're having right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first 10 founding fathers were slave owners, right? And right. all the way up through Lincoln, uh, they didn't have high regard for African-Americans uh, or obviously Native Americans either. But um, uh, but we're going to focus on the African-American story right now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because everybody thinks, well, Lincoln, uh, you know, freed enslaved people. But Lincoln's, you know, goal was to send people down to the Bahamas and others and, and create a separate nation. Right. It That's wasn't right. like. Yeah. So um, you walked around Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's place. Yeah. yeah. And I want to hear about that experience. How was all this playing in your mind as you were walking around those grounds? Wow, that's a great question. Nobody has asked that yet, by the way. Mm. Um, yes, I walked on, on Monticello's grounds and um, I was waiting to hear how they were going to frame the story of Sally Hemings. Mm -hmm. And they actually did it justice. I was I was surprised that they they really did do it justice. They, you know, they said accurately this is her bedroom. It was right, like right off, basically right off his bedroom. Um, it was a beautiful bedroom. Um, it was, you know, that relationship was honored um, and told, I think, accurately. But when I, um, when I went down to the actual field area, um, there's one home that is like a, a cabin that you see that like some Black family, probably the cook, 
lived in. And then there was the kitchen house. Mm-hmm. And then there was, there was, I think, six cabins that lined, maybe even just three or four, actually, that, that lined the, the area. And then beyond that was the garden that he was really famous for this, like, really interesting garden. Right. Botanist. Yeah. All, you know. Exactly. Yeah, right. That. So, but I had the fortune <laughs> to stand there and listen to this one young white woman really, really, like, get into the issue of race with, with Thomas Jefferson. I really did not expect that. Like, they did a good job up in the house, but this girl... And she said, she said explicitly, I'm not going to tell her name because I don't remember it, thank God, because I might get her in trouble. But she said, you know, this is not normally what you would hear on this tour, but I've done more research and I'm going to tell you what's what. Yeah. So I had serious good fortune on that day. And what she said was that, you know, they had at, um, at any one time on that plantation, I think they had like 150 enslaved people at any one given time. Right. And over the course of his life, he owned hundreds of enslaved people. Right. And um, so imagine you have 150 enslaved people living on your plantation and you have at most, at most about six cabins. Wow. You do the math. You do the math. And okay. So I said, so where did, where did, where did they sleep? And she looked, she said, this was a shed right here. This shed that they have kind of rebuilt, this housed the children. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, the shed was about half the size of my office that I'm in right now, which is not that big. It's like really small. And then you had a bunch of other, like you had a shed for the tools. <laughs> and she said, the rest of the enslaved people slept in the fields. Oh, no. In yes. Virginia. In Virginia. That's not and good. That, and that, let me tell you, that was the norm. Mm. That is not something you ever hear. I've heard that now on two separate plantations, one in Virginia, one in South Carolina. This one in South Carolina had 300 slaves, and they, they bragged that they, they treated their slaves well, I swear to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. They, that's what they always say, right? Well. Because we had... That. Right, because they had brick cabins. They had that, and they are so so proud of their brick cabins. Slave Street, on literally Slave Street. They call it Slave Street now. I swear to you. And I said, but wait, you had three hundred enslaved people, and there's six cabins. So where did everybody else sleep? And she said, in the fields. Okay, so now we're going to go into the house. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she she was not going to say that. Right. She didn't want to shrink the narrative gap. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So people would like to, it. yeah, people would like to think Thomas Jefferson was, you know, and, and all these founding fathers, George Washington, all, like I said, the first 10 own enslaved people that, you know, George Washington had as many slaves as Thomas Jefferson. That's right. So, and, and, and Thomas Jefferson had this going on, people sleeping in the fields when he wrote those words, all men are created equal. Right. So how, Lisa, how do we, uh, in, a, in a time where, you know, the, the extremists on the right are claiming to be the patriots, and how, does, how do other people become patriots when they know uh, more of the truth? They know that these founding fathers um, had, uh, you know, multiple people enslaved. They know that Thomas Jefferson was, um, let's say, at worst, a serial rapist. Mm-hmm. Um, they know that... Uh, 
you know, that the, the whole story as these stories start to come forth, you know, we're, we're hearing a whole lot more about the founding quote unquote fathers. Mm-hmm. How, how do we become a patriot in those kinds of dilemmas? What? Well, I think that it's, I mean, it, it, I, I like your question and I want to expand it because it's not only about patriotism and our founding fathers, but it's also the founding fathers of our faith in terms of American faith fathers, right? So mm-hmm. people like, Jonathan Edwards and um, uh, George Whitfield and others. I mean, they also were slaveholders. And, um, mm. you know, um, George Whitfield, I think it's, he, he bought a bunch of slaves. I mean, he, and I think that it was the case, if I'm remembering correctly, that Jonathan, um, Jonathan Edwards actually owned children. Um, one of them, I can't remember which one, so please forgive me for not remembering which one now. Um, it's late in the day. <laughs> um, but one of them owned, went out and bought a child to warm his feet at night, Whoa. literally. So the child warmed his feet at night. Um, wow. Right? So, and I think it was George Whitfield, like he literally um, uh, advocated for slavery for a large part of his life. So like he was, a, he was an advocate for slavery yeah. Um, now I think at one point he might have turned. He had a he had an aha moment, but there's a there's you know what I mean. Like how do you do that? And and yet and then go out on the evangelical trail trying to get more converts is because the only way to do that is to have to have a gospel in quotes that's constructed in the halls of empire, right? Mm-hmm. So when we look at when I look at the forefathers of our American evangelical faith. And I look at the fathers of America, the nation called America. um, What I see is I see people who are absolutely, um, absolutely captive to human hierarchies of belonging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they absolutely believe it. And I think that they have been duped They've been duped by Pope Nicholas V. They've been duped by Plato. They've been duped by Aristotle. They've been duped. They almost, they almost really didn't have, you know, a whole lot of, of chance to be on the right side, except that we do see people fighting for justice in their times. That's right. Naming the fact that it was unjust, naming the fact that slavery was unjust. At the same time, the Quakers were having their aha moment and banning uh-huh. slavery from, you know, from their communities, from their from their um, their unions, their meetings. So there's no way that you can say there was no witness. You know, you can't you can't judge them by today's standards. It wasn't today's standards. It's God's standard. That's right. I always, yeah. you know, people always ask me because I go around talking about Native American this and that and reparations and on and on. And people always, well, these were people of their time. The Pope, I'm talking about the current Pope even wrote a letter when he um, uh, sainted uh, the uh, the guy in California. What was his name? Uh, Sarah. Um, oh, yeah. 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 This, this guy used to ra- let his men rape Indians. He would cut their feet off when they ran away. He enslaved Indian people all through the Cal- uh, Cal- middle California. Uh, and the Pope sainted him, and in Congress— he was addressing Congress. I don't know if you remember this. I actually wrote I a letter in, in the Huffington Post, but I never got a Pope response from it. But uh, to the Pope, because when he said, 
But we must remember, people ask this question about injustice, you know, but we must remember that these were people of their times. Yeah, no, no. That got me because you know what that does? Oh, wait for it. And then Congress stands up and applauds. Oh, yeah. No, I guess. (laughs) But here's the thing. There are always, there's a witness during the same times who did the opposite, who did the right thing, usually costing them a lot and usually a minority voice. But yeah. there's no excuse because if one person in that time can understand it, they all could have understood it. And here's the thing: this is what I this is this is what has gotten me, even as a result of writing this book. Actually, now because you know it's ten generations, right, of one family, and so what you're looking at is you're looking at how this family was impacted by the choices that were made, the political choices, and that's the thing that struck me is that every single juncture. We had choices as a society of how we were going to live together. And they made a choice toward injustice. They did not, it was not like some inevitable predestined flow. I'm sorry. It was a choice to make a law that enslaved white women if they married um, enslaved black men and to enslave their children in perpetuity. It was a choice for Virginia to change how one how one status citizenship citizenship status was measured it was no longer measured through the father's line because the fathers were from britain the fathers were british citizens and british citizens could not be enslaved and these british citizens were raping enslaved black women and making these mixed race children who then took their cases to court elizabeth keys and and won because they said my father is a british citizen the citizenship is passed down through the father. Therefore, I am a British citizen and I cannot be enslaved. So they won their cases one by one by one. So what did they do in the House of Burgesses? They made a choice. They could have made the choice at that point, any number of choices. They could have been incredibly radical and just. They could have said, you know what? You're right. And we're going to phase out slavery by saying, okay, over time, you're not going to be able to be enslaved anymore. And, you know, they could have even been unjust about it and said, we're going to indenture you instead. And you have a limited amount. They could have, you know, they could have done any number, but they didn't. Instead, what they did was they said, no, we're not going to lose one dime. You're going to be enslaved in perpetuity because we're going to now change who the, who um, citizenship status comes through. It's no longer through the man. Now it's through the woman. So if we're raping the woman and she has children, those children and their children and their children and their children in perpetuity will now be enslaved because you women are enslaved. How convenient. That's how it works. And so it was choices. Yeah. So that's what gives me hope about this moment actually is that we are living in a time where we have to make a choice and we can, we can make a choice not to follow in the same footsteps. Yeah. So Virginia is an interesting place, right? Because, you know, so many of the founding fathers come from there and, and, uh, and, and we have the loving uh, st- yes. uh, case comes out of there. But yes. something else I know about Virginia is really interesting is I get to know people in Virgi- different parts of Virginia. There's a whole Cherokee community comes from a place called Buffalo Mountain in oh, Virginia. Wow. Where's that? They're, Where's they're, Buffalo Mountain? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I'm going to look it up right now. I've met people, yeah. <laughs> then there, there are Melungeons that come out of uh, Virginia. 
So the, the Melungeons are, you know, uh, people who are usually Cherokee or other, you know, Shawnee or other Indians married to, to whites or married to African-American people. And there are communities that sprung up. And then there are mixed race, little small towns in Virginia that were hid way up in the mountains that were full of mixed race people and yeah. um, marrying each other. And so, you know, it's sort of like if this is this is a story. This is the narrative that we need to tell. Right. This is what people who were heroes of their day were doing. We don't know much about them. We're just starting to discover more and more and more. But these are the stories that we need to tell. They are. And I really appreciate you saying that. And you know what those stories do? They complicate the narrative. Yeah. Well, until we we no longer believe the narrative. And, And that's why your book. Mm-hmm. ties in not just your family this is this is all set in context like she said mm-hmm. context is the text mm-hmm. and so um when you read fortune you are not just going to get lisa's own personal stories and her family stories but you're going to get the context of what's going on in america mm-hmm. and i think that's mm-hmm. something we're all looking for right now yeah i i was honestly my my mind was blown several times i mean i sat down to write the chapter on leah who was enslaved in South Carolina um, and um, was, was um, experienced abolition at, you know, at the end of the Civil War, also in South Carolina, Camden, South Carolina, was there for three or four generations. She, Leah, for, for a number of years, raised my grandmother. Mm-hmm. She was the last enslaved woman in our family. She raised my grandmother for a number of years. Um, you know, when I, I, but I couldn't tell her story. I could not tell her story without telling the story of Native American slavery in the South. Right. I just couldn't because there's that story that that story is in my family line. My, my aunt, or really she's my, she's my second cousin, Sheila. She insists, great grandmom, and she told me we are Creek. We are Creek. And then I look it up and I'm like, oh my God, there were Creek people there. There were, there were Muscogee Creek people in that area. It was very close and, and it's very, very possible because Muscogee Creek people were sold into slavery in South Carolina, as well as throughout the Deep South. Um, very, very possible that they were on the same plantation and then there was a union and there you go. But Absolutely. that, again, is a part of the history that we don't tell. Yeah, And so yeah. we end up simplifying our identities and simplifying our understanding of America and, and therefore doing injustice. Yeah, you cannot tell the black story in America without telling the Native American story along with it. It's impossible. And that's the same with your family. And um, so it's, uh, if we look, there's a wonderful documentary out um, called Rumble. It's Mm -hmm. how Native Americans rock the world. And a lot of the music that came about were because of mixed black and native people. And there are wow. native rhythms mixed with African rhythms and things like this. It's an incredible documentary, but, wow. but you can tell the story through a lot of different venues like that. I will definitely check that out. Rumble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great story. So, so Bo, I know we've got probably what about 10 more minutes. Maybe you've got uh, something that's uh, uh, burning in the back of your mind there. No, I am enjoying this tremendously. Oh, Bo. <laughs> I mean, I always have a hundred questions, but I'm going to let you guys go. But Lisa, I, just, I did want to just check with you on one thing. When I first met you, you were part of a group with a very interesting name called Evangelicals for Justice. Yeah. yeah. And are you still a part of that? 
Yeah, that- I helped to start it and I'm yeah. still on the board and I mean, it's still going. In fact, we're going to be having um, a summit where we come together to have hard conversations within evangelicalism. We're going to be go- d- diving into critical race theory. I think Randy is actually going to be part of that conversation. Um, Alexia Salvatierra is going to be with us doing faith-rooted organizing training. Um, and then we're also going to have a conversation on um, something else that I'm forgetting. So <laughs> I remember well, my conversation. Well, I, I'm glad I asked. I didn't know if that work was ongoing because I know, oh, yeah. I know that within evangelical circles, because I have friends and family all over the country who are, who are evangelical. I know that issues of justice and issues of race have become immensely more, not just complicated, but agitated. And so I didn't yeah. know if that work continued for you. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's probably needed more now than ever. And the great thing about that, that network is that it really is broad. I mean, really broad. There are people in the network who um, you, would, you wouldn't even know that they're evangelical, actually, because they're so active in justice and it's so antithetical to what you normally think of as evangelical, like myself, but they absolutely are. And then you have folks who normally are nowhere near a picket line and you would never see them, you know, on the front lines. And they are absolutely evangelical and like close to the heart of evangelicalism. And they're because they want to know, like they're, they're curious and they're, 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 they have a sense something isn't right in their church, and they're asking the question, what's going on? Or in the way that their church is studying the Bible, how, how should this be? Well, that's, that's where you get a lot of those folks. And it's not even just the wanderers or the, the, the questioners, the seekers. It's also the teachers. Like there are teachers from pretty conservative schools that are a part of um, professors that are part of our network. Well, I'm glad I asked. I <laughs> I'm, I'm actually really glad that, that work continues because yeah. uh, as somebody who's no longer a part of that stream, mm-hmm. I am so happy to know that there is work being done still in that arena. So, Well, I, you know, I, that's actually a really interesting uh, subject that you bring up because I, I used to, years ago, I was among, not even that, that long ago, but I was among those who I would rally to try to save the, you know, the, the title evangelical, like the moniker evangelical, you know, we need to take it back. We need to redeem it. We need to snatch it back out of the hands of the religious right. And so that was my work for a long time. I was in that group that did that in that cadre people, but I'm not there anymore. I, I mean, I've, I've had like big ahas over the last several years. I think my biggest aha was the night that we realized 81% of evangelicals had voted for Donald Trump. I was like, what? This is mm-hmm. after decades of people educating evangelicals on racial reconciliation, yeah, right? right? So, like, what in the world? What is it? We're not making any kind of a dent. Like, what? So, and not just that, but how could you? Like, you're going against everything you told me that you stand for to vote for him. And they continue to be with him. So here's the thing. Not less of them, but still they do continue. Here's the thing. I just realized... Jesus did not consider himself an evangelical. <laughs> or a Christian, by the way. Or a Christian, right. Or, he wasn't even around when he started calling people Christian, right? That was later. Paul did not um, ex- uh, call himself an evangelical. You know, not even Charles Finney called himself an evangelical, right? That was a moniker put on them in the 20th century by historians who looked back and said, oh, these are evangelicals. They didn't. They didn't think of them. They thought of themselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus. 
Um, and so I realized it's not, it's not important. It's just not important whether or not we save evangelicalism. Their other reason is because evangelicalism is a, is a movement that rose out of Europe, not out of the Bible. <laughs> it came from Europe and it came from Europe for a good reason and did good things when it came to be. It democratized the faith in the 1600s when it, when it first rose up, it actually started, you know, these, these things called um, basically Bible studies. Um, these, they didn't have Bible studies before that. So the Bible was only being interpreted by priests and stuff like that. Well, evangelicalism democratized the faith, brought people closer to God, able to be able to interpret their experience of God um, for themselves, as opposed to um, by some powerful ruler person. And so, so that's good. But that doesn't mean that it is the faith, nor is it necessarily the faith for everybody answering everybody's needs. No, it isn't. No, it came out of Europe to solve a particular problem at a particular time. And the faith has, has been shaped in other ways in Africa and Asia and South America that are just as legitimate. And I'm not talking about the parts of the faith that were shaped by white evangelicals in those spaces. Yeah. So, Bo, you know, I wish, and you know, if we could have just had like somebody maybe back in 2020 write a book like Decolonizing Evangelicalism. <laughs> if yeah. If that would have been an 11.59 p.m. conversation, you know, almost oh too late. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it would have been so helpful. So helpful. What the hell? Uh, yes. So I don't know if you remember, Lisa, you were, you and Shane were going to help us uh, book launch that uh, back in, uh, uh, what's in, the name of the in conference? Habit, up in Habit up in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then everybody, the COVID came out and we never did get to launch our book. So, That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? No way. Oh, yeah. well, so, everybody, look, read Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> and read decolonizing the Bible, or is it the faith? Decolonizing, decolonizing evangelicalism. Evangelicalism. Okay. Let's not talk about that one. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll launch it on the ten-year anniversary. Maybe that's a, there. You go. There you go. <laughs> but um, I do want to ask you some more things. One of the things can, that you talk about briefly, and I, people just don't know it, and they need to know about the the Black Manifesto, yes. and they need to know like what happened to the money. So can you educate our uh, listeners on the Black Manifesto? Absolutely. Well, at the end of the chapter on reparation, um, in part three of the book, so the chapter on reparation is chapter nine, so at the end of chapter nine, you have a list of three major inputs that were given, basically um, demands uh, for what reparations should, should include. And the first that I list is the Black Manifesto, which was written in the 1970s. And the Black Manifesto is basically, it is the Black community writing down at that time, leaders within the Black community coming together and discerning for themselves, this is what it will take in order for us to be made well, in order for people of African descent in America to be well. Now, it's interesting because you can... You can look at that and say, okay, well, we don't want to do that, so we don't want to do reparations, which is what a lot of people did for a long time. But that's not the point. The point of repair, the, the thing that's going to be necessary for repair is for those who did the offense, those who did the injustice and oppression who, who, or who benefited from it, to ask those 
who have been oppressed, what do you say needs to happen in order for things to be made well with you? That's the point of that chapter for me. Um, When I ask the question of reparations or when I began to approach that question, the biggest thing people would say is, well, but how do you determine who gets a check? And you know, how much did the check be and all that? And and those are, I think, all just, you know, smoke clouds because it's not the real point. The real point is you need to repair the relationship. That's the point. And whatever it takes to repair the relationship is what it will take. And that relationship broke. The original break was in that moment that the first explorer came and landed on the coast of Africa, somewhere in Africa, whether it was Senegal or even the Southern Cape, right? And they looked at the land and they said, they looked at the people on the land and they said one of two things. They said either, look, nobody's here, right? That's Terra Nullius. That was in Australia. Or they said, look, nobody who is civilized is here so we can take this land and we can enslave its people according to the Pope, Pope Nicholas V, right? His um, Romanus or Romanus Pontifex. And so that's where the break happened. It was there. So if the break happens at the point where the image of God, the call of God to exercise dominion in the world is erased, is not recognized, is um, is crushed, then repair of that relationship at the very least, first and foremost, will require the recognition of the image of God in the other and the call of God for them to exercise dominion, if nothing else, over their own repair. Thank you so much for joining us and for all that you do. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Bo. Yeah, it was great to be with you today. So good to hear your voice. 